Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charvak Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. I am in the great former colonizer of India. I am in England and uh, as I travel England, I give multiple talks. I am finally with my dear friend, someone who has been a great source of inspiration in my personal life and someone who, who has taught me a lot and uh, i finally got him on the podcast after a while so ladies and gentlemen please welcome sachin nanda sachin Great. really good to be here it's been a while yeah and uh yeah i mean when it, was the last time we spoke oh i think it's a few years yeah it's been a few years at least on the podcast yeah on always... the podcast we had uh, i remember the last time we had who is the hindu who is a discussion, hindu. right yes yes and i think you got some interesting remarks and yeah conversation flowing off the back of that so just to give everyone a brief background as to why i decided to host this podcast so on the 21st of september i have his uh, blog opened in case you're wondering why i'm looking at the phone because i need it for my notes sachin had published uh on medium uh, uh, an essay titled uh, India's Path to Affluence uh, and the subtitle of that was Education, Innovation, Capital Accumulation and, and it really caught my eye because we're used to Indians commenting on everything outside India but here you were living outside India and you were giving a commentary on India as, as an outsider. Now uh, maybe maybe let's start here. Why? What made you talk about it? So I think Increasingly, so I've always been interested in in India, obviously, being Indian of, of Indian origin. Um, and I think the way in which India is coming onto the world stage mm -hmm. inevitably is attracting a lot of people's gaze. Yeah. yeah. Right. There's a lot of gazing going on. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've began to realize is that outside of India, there are certain frameworks through which people gaze at India, right? There, there, there yeah. are certain preconceptions, there, there, there are certain narratives that pre-exist in people's minds, consciously or unconsciously. And so they're all interpreting India in a particular way. And so one of the things that I think we have to do, and I feel almost as if it has to come from the outside, which is we need to create better frameworks to better interpret India and what's actually happening out there. So a lot of these... Um, uh, 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 essays, blogs on Medium are about helping people out here uh, interpret what's happening in India in a, in, a, in a more accurate way. So a better framework, a more accurate framework through which to gaze at India. So, so that's what it was about. Okay, but uh, so I'll share a little bit of my experience in the year 2001 when I was in York University in, in Toronto, Canada. Uh, I clearly remember getting into the library finally and just out of curiosity started picking up books on India and in, in India or Hinduism in general Indian culture it doesn't have to be about Hinduism and I saw something very unique where I would pick up books on Islam Christianity or other cultures uh, whether Japan in fact even Japan Shintoism there would always be a Shinto scholar who's native to Japan or in the case of Confucianism there would be a scholar from China talking about China and stuff like that. But in the case of India, I would rarely find this to be. So why do you think in your view, because to, to pick up from what you have said, why do you think it has happened in the case of India or Indian studies in general? I, I think there's a lot to do with a colonial past, right? Japan was never colonized the way in which India was colonized, yeah. right? Neither was China, mm -hmm. right? Um, but but if you look at the African uh, narratives, they're in a similar boat to India. Oh, that's interesting. Right? So I, I find that there's something to do 
with the relationship of the colonizer and the colonized right and and i i mean i'm i'm postulating so but i think there's something to be said about that so i think india has often and has always been um sort of seen through a particular lens that has become almost i would say you know fossilized um uh, uh, from the late 19th century, 20th century, 21st century, right? And and even though India has evolved tremendously in every shape and form, the framework through which, the prism through which we gaze at India hasn't changed. And therefore, a lot of the tropes, they've become tropes now, you know. Uh, so if you pick up any book on India, within the first paragraph, caste, clan, tribe, you know, poverty, um, these things will will be literally within the first paragraph of any book on India, mm -hmm. right? But to what extent do they are they the major themes of modern India, right? I think they're there. I think they're there. But my, this is my argument in what I'm trying to create, which is actually we need to create better frameworks of what's happening in India because there is not one India. My argument is often that I think India, you know, it's this huge, vast country in geography, in population, in cultural diversity, right? Uh, in religious diversity, in linguistic diversity. And, you know, and, and within that, I think there's something quite unique happening in India, which is India is one country where I believe there's almost three centuries being played out all at once. I can go to India and I can still find people living in the 19th century. And I can still, and I can go to India literally and I will see people in the 21st century aspiring for the moon, right? And, and, and aspiring for anything that anybody in the city of London would aspire for. So India is unique in that sense where you have, you know, hundreds of millions of people living in each different century, the 21st, 20th, and 19th. And everybody is traversing those centuries every day, weaving in and out of each other's time, time zones. And adjusting and 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 getting by and you know, which for the Western mind, the Western mind, my mind, it's very difficult to take that many data points all at once and make sense of it, right? So it's much we we come from a framework where I think it's a lot more simpler. It's the kind of diverse that India has we don't have to deal with, the kind of kind of wealth and poverty that India has we don't have to deal with. Right? The kind of languages India has, we don't have to deal with, right? So, so it, we we often it's it's comfortable for us to look to the colonial gaze. Still, it just makes sense for us, right? It's easy, easy, it's easy. I, I can compartmentalize things in a much more simplistic manner. Whereas I I think if we start becoming honest and more accurate about how to interpret India, how to engage with India in a more meaningful way, then we're going to have to start building models and frameworks that really encaptures the diversity of India. Okay, so so maybe we can divide this discussion into two parts, right? One is what India is, and one is what India is perceived as. Now, let us forget about what India is perceived as in the United States of America or Canada. Let us strictly focus on what India is perceived as in the United Kingdom. So if I was to say the caste, cows, and curry stereotype Let's not discuss that. That's the yeah. pop culture level. But I'm talking about the academic stereotype. Let's say, you know, your, your former university, Oxford. If I was to go in Oxford, what is the stereotype of India in Oxford? Or what is the stereotype of India in Cambridge or 
or or king's college london for yeah. for example where i was there recently giving a talk so what what kind of stereotypes are there from from in the academic realm yeah so 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 take take the elite institutions right so you you mentioned oxford right so i think there by and large you, you know you've got a fairly enlightened crowd right it's a it's a it's a, it's a very educated generally well traveled international uh community there you would see i think people are people acknowledge right that india is on the rise right economically i think everybody understands that i think everybody experiences at least here in the west in uk the arrival of indian engineers indian doctors indian it professionals right they're literally in every major firm you can think of in the uk they are there so i think everyone's experienced that so you can see something's happening in india coupled with that so that's one breath in the next breath there'll be yeah but the state of indian women is pretty backwards right the state of minorities in india is pretty poor right um the environmental degradation of india is really bad right so 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 what you get at a place like oxford is you will get this social economic sort of rise that everybody recognizes and lots of indians are coming out to work all over the world at the same time you've got these social problems right you've got problems of law and order or you've got problems of women's safety so you know these are the kind of tropes you will pick up just in everyday conversation and and it's not that these people are experts and don't get me wrong i still don't think and this might be a little bit of a surprise i think for many listeners india is not still you know when people think about world powers for most people in the uk i think all my english friends india wouldn't rank in the top 5 and i know for indians some of they think well how can you ignore india but but they're not ignoring it they just don't think india is that important still right it's something that is coming we can see something's happening over there but we'll still talk about france we'll still talk about us we'll still talk about china india will come somewhere lower down the pecking order because with that second breath there's the poverty there's the illiteracy there's the you know all of that stuff going on so it, you know in india is still not on the top table as far as you know the the many people in britain would would say i would say no i think that that that's a fair thing and this has been my experience even in north america where uh in my travels now i see interest in india i see curiosity in india but at the same time i don't see willingness to learn india about india and and let me explain when i say wow so so you know somebody before somebody says well you know so many papers are written in universities etc etc i'm like it's not there there is no willingness to learn is why is because when you want to learn about india you go to the usual suspects when i say usual suspects there is you know i i call them like 500 people who have been talking about india for the last 75 years and uh, and there is this absurd sort of a citation loop that has been created where scholar a cites scholar a b c d e a f g and and it's like x is citing y y is citing z and and everybody is just citing each other and it has created this incessant loop where there are 500 people who are writing about india then and, and it is 
as if it's like a closed society and nobody who comments about india who does not follow the norms the standard norms where uh, all hell has broken loose in india everything is down like i'll give you an example when when the vdem institute came up with the freedom rankings or or the russian mm. or the french agency or whatever it was they came up with the freedom of press rankings like i would be the first person to say that india does not have freedom of press at its ideal level but the kind of rubbish that was peddled in that report was not factual now uh, on my podcast you know i've shared figure after figure multiple times that you know if you look at absolute crime data in india with irrespective of the government it just keeps going down yeah. year after year law and order becomes better in india is it ideal no but but when you look at like if i was somebody sitting in america or england and if i was reading the guard you know the new york times or the washington post and uh, the bbc and if i would form my opinion on india based on that i would think all hell is broken loose and it's very interesting when i was looking at a study which had shared by in the past i'll i'll send you the link of the study the study looked at indian coverage coverage of india in the bbc al jazeera and one cnn i think and they came up with an overwhelming conclusion that they only cover negative things about india now if you are covering only negative thing about india and you've been in the academia you know when you write academia citations are important and if you look for citations and all you look into these mainstream publications are negative things and you don't look at government data like let's say ncrb reports you know the government of india publishes its crime data very openly you can go and anybody can just download the data sets and look at it for themselves and and governments in india keep changing right there are different state governments there are different municipal governments and the central government also has changed like now we have two terms of narendra modi's government but before that we had two terms of manmohan singh's mm-hmm. government and none of this data is taken into factor at no. all there's a problem here here um which again i think maybe people don't quite appreciate right so if you look at take germany right germany had the largest number of indology departments in in the world right exactly uh, i mean you know in scale obviously different to us but in terms of most of them are in financial trouble their funding is being taken away and by 2030 more than 50 to 60% would have closed down take india centers there's an india center at kings there's an india center at cambridge whatever etc most of them are financially struggling right they are struggling to attract students they they they're struggling with funding um and so you haven't believe it or not as india rises you would think more and more people would be traveling researching but it's not what's happening is you've got a shrinking of voices in the in the academy i would argue there are no special or very few specialist centers that studies in the the indian phenomena right the indian phenomena is still not well understood here and actually it's regressing which is why um you know people like myself and 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 the diaspora as a whole are taking it upon themselves to set up staging platforms to say you know what we do need to spend time money and resource on understanding this phenomena called india because it's going to affect all our lives uh whether we like it or not for better or worse so it's better that we start understanding this uh, and not rely on the academy because the academy has become a little bit of an echo chamber and a shrinking echo chamber at that mm-hmm. so i i i think there are some systemic challenges um that we face right here here in the west now this reminds me uh, of a very interesting data set that 
I often talk about when I share this uh, little bit, uh, you know, small tidbit of a fact. Now, once again, if you read commentary on India, you might think, you know, people are being lynched everywhere. <laughs> All hell has broken loose in <laughs> India. No, I'm serious. Yeah, like, I know. It, it, it I really know. is. Listen, I you know. live here. How many times have you told me India I get asked? India is the rape capital of the yeah. world. I mean, you get asked absurd. Now, is the, is there a, a, a problem inside Delhi and the surrounding region? Yes, but that's not the whole of India. And, you know, we should have uh, some semblance of uh, balance in reportage of India. Or let's talk about riots in India for that matter. But, but Kosha, you know, can I just sort of, sort of jump in here? One of the major problems I find is that it's Indian scholars. Mm-hmm. Who are living out here mm-hmm. in the US in Sweden? Yes. Who are the ones uh-huh. that are constantly shining the light and magnifying the, the, the negative phenomena? Right? It's actually not Western scholars that are the problems, I find. I find Western scholars on the whole, you know, generally open-minded and, and generally curious and, and wanting to understand India. But I find that a lot of the 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 kind of magnification mm-hmm. of the negative tropes and the negative phenomena comes from Indian scholars from India who are stationed out here and and, and I just see I have been seeing that ever since I was a child right uh, I saw it when I was at university and I still see it today okay let me push back a little on this but don't you think then this is just passing the buck on to the Indians because uh... The Indians don't have editorial control over New York Times. The Indians don't have editorial control over Washington Post or all these journals that are published in these universities. The Indians can, they want that stuff to be published. So whosoever writes that stuff, they will publish that. Don't you think that that is the case? Yeah. Okay. So, so, so I think there is some truth to that. I think there is some truth to that. But I think, you know, if you couple in the three things we've already touched on, one is that colonized framework mm-hmm. second is you know indians that are out here who are trained in a particular way i suppose and, and, and look i'm i i've never lived in india okay mm-hmm. so i i cannot comment but i do find it a interesting phenomena as to how close-minded some of these academics are from india when they when it comes to india they're very <laughs> open-minded about everything else when it comes to india they're very close-minded right and they have their strict positions they take Right, good, bad, ugly. Just they, but they're very strict, and I agree with you that that there could be an editorial bias as well, and that goes back into that first point that there is, I think, a very, very um, unhelpful, um, almost regressive framework through which Europeans gaze at India, and it has to change. It has to change, um, and that's what we're trying to do. All right, so I'll give you an example over here, so as people can also see the figure on their on their screens. And uh, I'm going to show this to you over here on the Mm -hmm, phone. mm -hmm. So these are the riots figures in India, right? So you see how it in the 1970s and 80s, it peaks. And then look at the story of India. Yeah. Whether it's UPA or NDA, the number is going down. It's a fantastic story. Right? That's a fantastic story. Now, why doesn't anybody talk about this? Now, this is my question. Isn't this a data point that somebody should be addressing? Now, and and this is official government data. Now, yeah. if somebody says, oh, the BJP made it up, well, the Congress wouldn't, right? I mean, I, I always say this to these academics. I'm like, well, you're the Congress guy, right? The Congress didn't make it up, right? 
but it's consistently going down irrespective of what government was involved yeah. Yeah. we're talking about the india story we're not talking about the bjp story for for example and there are many such other data sets like i often point out a very good book uh, that was written on internal security in india right this, this is the book i point out this is not written by some bjp apologist right. it is right. by amit ahuja and devesh kapoor it is called internal security in india and this book you know takes you through an entire data set whether uh <laughs> whether it is on let's say insurgencies and left wing extremism whether it's insurgencies in kashmir riots data all the data it it has covered and it's in the first chapter itself every single chart is there and in almost every chart the direction is only one way it yeah. is going down yeah. it is going down consistently in india that means there can only be one conclusion that law and order is improving in india absolutely but in the commentary of india it looks like it's worse <laughs> it, it, it's almost as if there is there are murders happening in every corner of india everybody is just throwing rocks at each other everybody is just killing each other and and somebody and i often ask them like what is your data source yeah and there is no data source i i have to tell you i i i think um uh there's a nuanced take to this okay so i think when it comes to the economic phenomena of india mm mm-hmm. i think you will find that most so now not about the academy i'm talking yes, about yes. newspapers yeah yeah the newspapers may come out 45 55 in one favor or the other yeah, right economic yeah yeah that's what there's a true. lot lot no, of no, i agree yeah. with you but when it comes to society it's all, it's all negative it's 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 impossible it's impossible now i have a little theory which okay. i don't think it's you know i i i can't back it up yet but but i think studies need to be done on our side here in the west mm-hmm. so so um you know there will be in fact you will see in the next 6 months there will be uh, studies coming out which we where we will be tracking using big data and ai um to, to track in real time um uh, how negative and on what uh particular topics is the western media mm. particularly out of sync with with the story that all news is negative right negative news sells but but then but then you take a datum point and then you go and see well okay under this topic so for example indian economy i suspect will be pretty much there there about with the median but i suspect that when it comes to society and culture it will be really negative now that's a hypothesis which we're going to prove right see if it if it there or not now now there's a reason for that i still believe that you know people do want of course people want hundreds of millions of indians to come out of poverty mm-hmm. right i i i find it that most people in the west overwhelmingly want india to do well economically right yeah. and they want those people to come out be educated be safe and you know in that sense i i don't see a problem where i think it gets interesting is that i don't think most westerners really understand indian culture right i i just don't think there is any mechanism or framework that can capture the indian phenomena for them culturally societally right so economics is much more easier mm-hmm. i can see bridges and buildings and i can see people in suits and i can get that because it's very similar to ours right so so we can see the skyline of mumbai developing oh yeah that, that that's like the city of london or new york and you know i i get that a little bit i mean i mean i'm caricaturing but that's what it is but indian culture indian civilization 
I mean, that, I mean, most Western academics don't even accept the word civilization for India, right? So, 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 you know, culturally, the Indian phenomena is not, um, you know, it, it, people just don't understand it. P people cannot grasp it, what it is. Now, therefore, something you cannot understand, mm -hmm. you will always fear. You will always fear it because you cannot interpret it. You cannot make sense of it. You cannot read it. You cannot predict it, right? I think there are many people here who would like nothing more than India to become a first world country, a truly developed country, but culturally and societally just become a replica of the West. So, so do you think but they are reflecting their uh, anxieties upon India? Yes, I think so. I, I think there is something like that happening here. I, I, and I think the frameworks and the academy, none of these things are really helping us. You see, you can't blame the journalists too much. Because ultimately, what the, what the journalists will do is, is they will inevitably say, hey, but I'm just referencing the academy, man. Look at all these citations. The same citations you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the media guys are always going to say, we're not scholars. We're just using these citations. Look, look at the body of work. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, the arrow points towards the academy. Right. And then academy has its own challenges. As I said, shrinking spaces to understanding India, not expanding, shrinking. Um, and that in itself is a question for every Indian and every one of your readers, uh, listeners to contemplate. Right. I, I think if you look at any successful society that is well understood, Chinese, Japanese, right, mm -hmm. which are non-Western, you will see that the people have cottoned onto the idea that you have to, as a people, not government, as a people, have to invest in ideas. Mm -hmm. Right? Things like your podcast is an example of a society that is beginning to awaken and beginning to translate uh, what it is to the rest of the world. Right? Um, Indians need to fund their own research centers. Indians need to start investing in research and, and and philanthropy doesn't have to be building temples and schools. Philanthropy can be about backing researchers, backing scholarships, backing PhDs, because we need to create an alternative body of work with the right frameworks to help the world understand what India is. I don't think the world understands what India is. Now, let's touch upon this because this is something that in the recent Canada-India tensions also, when the Honorable External Affairs Minister of India uh, Sri Jayashankar, when he visited the Hudson Institute, he made he mentioned a very interesting line where he told uh, the person who was interviewing him uh, on the stage, he said that India is not anti-Western. India is just non-Western. And I was not looking at the external affairs minister. I was looking at the person interviewing him. And there was no look, as in, I think they don't understand what it is to be a friend of a Westerner but not be a Westerner. Do you think the West has not yet reconciled that fact that you can be friends with someone who's not like you? I think, look, I, I think the West is good friends with Japan, right? Mm -hmm. Japan is not Western, right? Having said that, many Japanese friends will say, oh my God, we've become so Western, right? Like I know Japanese friends that will say that. But I would still, you know, having traveled in Japan, uh, I like Japanese culture. I would say Japan is not Western, right? But it's really developed. And the West generally um, 
has learned to understand Japan. And and the West can, I think, in some sense, feel safe with Japan, right? Um, of course, that wasn't always the case. In the 70s and 80s, that wasn't always the case. Uh, but they've got there. And I think the Japanese people take a lot of... You know, they... they they branded themselves, they invested in understanding Japan, they invested in tourism, and even the Japanese culture, right? When anybody, when anyone goes to Japan, you can feel the Japanese culture. And it's almost become like a badge of honor, right? Like the discipline of the Japanese, the, the politeness of the Japanese, et cetera, et cetera. So clearly, I don't think it's that, it's not a, it's not a blanket term, I would say, that the West only want to be able to be friends with other Westerners, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I think they can make friends with non-Westerners, but but they need to understand the phenomenon in front of them. And I don't think they do. I don't think they understand India. But then what efforts have been made from the Western side to reach out to India to understand India from the... You know how the emic versus the etic view exists in anthropology or in, in philosophy in general. Now, has there been an effort from the West? Again, I don't want to make this about Audrey Trotsky from Rutgers, and I don't want to give her more importance than is required. But I'll just give you the average perception that if somebody would go to a scholar or an academic from the West and say that this understanding that you have is actually inaccurate, and uh, you know there are Sanskrit scholars who would say that your translation is inaccurate they would say what do you know i am the phd so that sort of arrogance is also meted out against uh, indian scholars who are you know living breathing embodying that moment embodying that culture they actually speak in sanskrit also in many cases yeah. these people are literal scholars of sanskrit so how, how does one bridge this gap Kushla, honestly speaking you know I, I i i think it's not a equal playing field right it's not an equal playing field i i think you know um uh, I think we're getting better at it because I can see more and more scholars from India being able to speak beautifully, write beautifully, mm. and express themselves beautifully um, to challenge these narratives that that are the kind of, I would say, from the Western Academy, right? The top five, six journals that, that keep talking about India in a particular way, right? Um, but it's not an equal playing field. The truth of the matter is, is you can write, in, just, just take the scientific journal. You can write something in nature, in scientific journal, and you know that nature is being subscribed by almost every single university on this planet that has a science department, right? Mm -hmm. so, I mean, it's everywhere. You tell me a single Indian journal that is prescribed by universities in Japan or in Paraguay or in know. Mexico. I don't know. Exactly. And, and so I think what... And therefore, that, that, that therefore now, for the Indian voice to be heard, yeah. they have to be in nature. There is a knowledge asymmetry. Correct. And, and so this, these are still some of the massive uh, uh, stepping stones that I think the Indian Academy, Indian culture, Indian writers, uh, Indian intellectuals still have to go through. And, and I think India should and will, I hope, build its own journals that are really credible, really rigorous, really in the pursuit of truth uh, that speak quality, which then makes them credible in Mexico and Paraguay and Japan and China.
right? So, so here, let me be a little bit of a critique, right? And I'm gonna, yeah, please do. Yeah, I, I, I that's what when I travel to about. India, I've and I'm gonna probably get a lot of hate mail for this, no, but no. when I travel to India, I don't find rigor in the culture. I find some people, I'll always find obviously it's a billion people, right? Absolutely, I'll find brilliant people, of course, there are brilliant people in India, but. As a culture, in the academy, in think tanks, research is not rigorous enough. It's not up to par. No, no, it's not. And I, and I, and I, it hurts me to even say that, but I have to tell you, uh, it really is not up to scratch, uh, especially in the humanities. I think science is getting better. I think medical research is getting better, absolutely. But in the humanities, uh, I think we are, you know, way behind I, I you know i'll just give you i won't make, name any any particular think tanks but i but i went to particular think tanks and you know they have uh middle eastern experts i speak to the middle eastern experts and they they themselves just openly you know they're firstly they're underpaid they're not paid very well right <laughs> so their motivation is very poor they're all phds none of them could read arabic they can't read persian right and there they are studying the Middle East. Now, if you can't read the native language of the region you are meant to be an expert in and studying, there's a problem there. That means you are relying on secondary texts all the time. Translations. Translations. And who's doing the translations, by the way? The Western academics who are invested in learning Arabic, invested in learning Farsi, right? You can't knock that. So, and, and you're relying on their lens then. And you're relying on their lens. Absolutely. And so I find that this is deeply problematic uh, within, within the Indian Academy. Um, and, and I think there's a cultural problem. I think Indians always look for shortcuts. I'm probably going to get hate mail for this. But I, I think there is a culture there of, you know, let's not be rigorous. Let me get this done as fast as I can, as quickly as I can, you know. And I don't know why that is. Uh, I can't comment. But I sense that. And that holds us back in, at this level. No, I think it, it has a lot to do with a society that is poor on average and societies that don't have a lot of money, right? They want to, you know, get rich quick, uh, use the get rich quick option. But would, would you say that's true for this level of India, the Indian, the, the level of India, which is kind of talking about academy, science, you know, are they poor? Uh, I think when it comes on average in India, I, I think... Indians, on average, those who make it have a very poor opinion about humanities in general. Okay. Like the, the standard pop culture stereotype in India is somebody who went into arts, which is called humanities is part of arts. is like they got bad grades. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I didn't appreciate that. Okay. So they just, they just think all, all the dummies go there. I'm being very honest. Okay. Right? And and you don't be surprised. Like uh, people watching this and listening to this, isn't that the uh, pop culture stereotype? Tell him. And, and, and it's a very, which is a bane of India, to be very honest, you know, friends of mine, you know, I've, I've had discussions about this with Abhinav Prakash Singh, Guru Prakash, you know, these are, Guru is a PhD, Abhinav is an academic and a professor, uh, he teaches economics uh, uh, in the university and, and he has told me the disdain because uh, Indians have for these, uh, these fields, he's like, you know, the humanities is very big, gender studies is a very small part of it, yeah. you know, <laughs> basically everything in our life is affected by humanities, most of the policy making is affected by humanities. Uh, 
when it comes to you're right when it comes to science and math we have a lot of rigor because there's just a culture of excellence in those parts uh the problem as far as the journals and the citations are concerned is indians themselves look for site uh, you know validation from outside journals so even if they have good work they end up jumping outside because it's just i think the outside journals would pay them more and now some things are changing indians do come back and do some original research over there like my friend anand ranganathan anand has done a lot of original research on tuberculosis and malaria and stuff like that and anand is running an active lab in india but see okay, okay, I, I, i agree and I, and i suspect that's because of the excellent facilities that now india has when it comes to medical research yeah. and all that but they don't have it but on the humanities. humanities no no they don't they just don't and and it is very very scary if you ask me uh, and again this might get me hit because other than the tata institute of social sciences which is the most hated institute in in on the internet for some odd reason but, but i think we need like 100 tata institute of social sciences not one we need hundreds of them in india and the fact that we barely have a few of them and um, we only rely on them is actually very scary in india we need more of these institutions we need more database research we need more behavioral psychology researchers yeah. we need people who understand the indian mind now uh, for example you know the big five personality traits like do the big five personality traits apply on indians has an indian done research on that has an indian done serious replications on that like when the paper came out that 65% of the psychology papers cannot be replicated and they fail when howard did that study i mean a lot of uh, tropes in psychology will form like he, yes tradition yes. to richie he has written the book on uh, called science fictions and you know he yes. he himself is from that background he, he's in this country and uh, you know we just digest these frameworks and humanities is the one place where i believe every country should have a robust department because unlike hard sciences which have universal application humanities sometimes don't have universal correct it's localized localized applications are there and the one thing every country should be investing on is humanities but the one thing india doesn't invest on is humanities yeah. and it is a serious problem for india and and you know indians have developed this very absurd sort of a frog in a well mentality where if they also they don't like to hear things that that are critical about their own culture is because it stems from a very old uh, colonial bashing trope because every time somebody from the outside looks at them and especially if they look white like in your case you may not get that much hate is because you are indian yes of indian origin so they may still listen to you or a person like me saying that but they have such a baggage with uh, the colonizer that even when the colonizer's criticism of their country is genuine they just refuse to hear it is because of the trauma of uh, of colonization but you cannot excel in life having a frog in the mel mentality and this is a genuine criticism of india which i unfortunately when when i do it on my podcast as as someone who has a serious viewership listen, listen more like more than 70% of my listener base is 25 and above so i have a more okay. more mature listener base like unlike most content creators in india my listener base is majority 25 and above most content creators in india have a 25 and below listener base is that right yeah yeah oh, most of okay. them have a young listener base for me a more mature audience listens to me uh, i don't know why but because you're boring That's yeah why. maybe <laughs> <laughs> you have to really be committed to listening to you yeah so so that that could be one of the reasons but it's a serious problem in india and this is a genuine criticism uh, 
whether I listen, this is the third country now in my current uh, trip outside India. You know, I went to America. I was told the same thing. They're like, look, we are interested in India. But if we make a mild criticism of India and then you have an army of people coming and telling us how we are, you know, sold out sepoys every time, then we're not in interested you know nobody wants so much negativity and then okay you have stopped them from saying bad things about you quote unquote but then where is the rigor from your end where is the original research from yes. your end e- even as of now i mean when i showed that chart about you know data and stats as far as internal security in india is concerned i was basically reacting to a western trope i was not spending my time writing a paper saying how violence is reducing in India. The, the point should have been me writing a paper talking about violence reduction in India and somebody in the Western Academy are blowing holes in my hypothesis. Yeah. That should have been the, the balance. But the fact is that I am just reacting to the other side and Indians just don't like humanities. Like even Salvatore Babones, you know, one of his uh, criticisms where, again, I did not agree with Salvatore because, again, he was passing the buck on Indians. But Salvatore's analysis, what that you say, the West says bad things about India, but it's all your academics saying bad things about India. But my point is that... Yes, our academics are saying bad things about India, but what about the editorial control? Yes, Why correct. can't the editor say, say something nice about India? Yeah. The editor also doesn't want to hear anything correct. nice about because India. Because they also already have preset yeah. frameworks. So, so what, what I'm trying to say is, while India sucks in, in these departments, the other side also wants to make sure that this larger narrative and stereotype about India stays somewhere at a social realm. Yes, yes. They, Basically, I, I, I think there's something really... Um, uh, if you just connect some some dots here, right? For capital to accumulate in any society, mm-hmm. it needs to have some basic foundations, right? So it, for uh, for capital accumulation, which is what India needs, it's what Indians want to do. They want to accumulate capital, mm-hmm. right? You need rule of law. You need you need stability. Absolutely, right? You need consistency. You Absolutely. need predictability. Okay. One of the things, the current framework of gazing at India is that it's highly unpredictable. It's uh, highly um, uh, di- divided, it's a divided society, um, you know, and and it's unsafe. So all of these things are conducive, you know, for capital to flee, not to stay, mm-hmm. not to be attracted to. So I think one of the, you know, if nothing else appeals to the Indian mind, this should be there. That, Every single positive trait that is happening in India needs to be studied and it needs to be got out there into the big wide world mm-hmm. because it will attract capital. It will attract capital. And I suspect some of the negative tropes are there and they are consistently there because it continuously gives the market information that India is still not stable. It is unpredictable. There is no rule of law or it's a weak rule of law, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so um, capital doesn't come as maybe fluidly as it could have, right? Mm. And without capital, a society can't build the schools and the universities and the bridges and the departments that you and I are talking about. So in a way, it's like a, everything's interconnected, right? So, so India needs capital. For capital to come in India, in I mean, I know people get excited about Indian growth, but India is not even, I don't think, at 30% of where it's going to get to, or it should get to. Right, the kind of capital India needs. For example, for India to reach, you know, for every trillion dollars 
that India needs to grow its GDP by, it needs to attract 3x of that in investments, roughly, right? So in order for India to reach 5 trillion, it's going to need to attract about 4.5 trillion of investment. Yeah. Right? And so on and so forth, right? Now, of course, a lot of that's going to be internally generated because India is a huge market of itself. But nevertheless, right? Like, like you know, um, India may be sending out skilled workers to the world. But, but as you were telling me, I think it needs a huge influx yeah. of highly skilled CEOs. I think yeah, you were telling me. I think me. India needs CEOs. Right? So, so I, 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 think, I think India needs to attract much more capital. And that's why social sciences matter. Because it, it sends data points to the market. Yeah. And the market is not controlled, unlike how conspiracy theorists might like to think. There is some you know, group of 12 who control the international market. It's not. The market is a, a nebulous thing. But it does react to data points, mm-hmm. right? It does react to the body of work. And therefore, if the body of work coming out of India or on India is consistently negative on its society, on its culture, uh, on its rule of law, capital will not accumulate. In fact, even if capital does accumulate, it will run away, right? A billion and a half dollars comes out of India every year just for real estate in the city of London. Wow. That tells you something about the mindset of the super wealthy in India, right? Whether they're Indian or not, right? Doesn't matter who's made the money. Point is, that money is coming out of India every year, just in real estate. Never mind the rest of England. Never mind the other investments that are happening in England from Indians and India. A billion and a half every year. And it's growing that number. Now, what India has to do is to say, no, why would you want to take that money out? You want to keep that money in you know, you want to get that money in because you're going to make it bigger, better, safer. Your money is safe in India. But a lot of people clearly don't think it is. And hence, money comes out. Or at least a certain percentage of money comes out. Right? But everybody thinks London is safe. The city of London survives because people believe it is stable. There's a rule of law. It is, it is predictable. You know, etc. etc. Now, people may not like that and people may not agree with me. But the facts speak for themselves. Capital comes into London like no other city on the planet. And it's not because London is the most innovative and the most brilliant and the most, I mean, it is a very, very nice place to live, but it's because it's safe. It's perceived to be safe. And therefore the market reacts. And, and why is it perceived to be safe? Brand Britain is excellent. Brand Britain all over the world is an aspirational brand still, even today, right? So we can knock it as much as we like. And I know in India it gets knocked a lot, uh, but, but around the world, Brand Britain is, perceived to be everything that attracts capital. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why this tiny little island continues to be an influential player in the world. You know, I know a lot of people won't agree with me or they'll say, oh, yeah, it's nothing. But actually, I wouldn't underestimate it. You know, you just have to be in the city of London and, and you know the kind of power and the kind of, you know, uh, capital accumulation that happens here. So I think there's something to be said here that strategically it is really important that good news, real good news, huh? real good news, well-researched good news, well-researched developments do come out of India mm-hmm. out, and from Indians, right? Um, into Western journals. But Indian journals should also be respected by the West, right? To say, this is a really credible journal, right? This journal should be in our library, right? Produced in India. And, and, and so, you know, from a diasporic perspective, right? Even though I am very British, mm-hmm. obviously I'm very Hindu and obviously I'm very Indian. Yeah, I get it. Right? Um, it, we 
we also have a have a role to play in that. I feel mm-hmm. right. So 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 these are the kind of I think uh, flows that are that are happening. These are the kind of forces that are coalescing, and I think Indians need to capture this social sciences and this humanity space uh, in a much more coordinated fashion because it has real world effect. Yeah, just to back you up. You know, if you look at the top 500 universities in the world, there's just one Indian university. Which one is it? I don't know okay. which one is it. Well, there's one. But there's one. And, uh, you know, America is number one. Then you have China. And then number three is the United Kingdom. Yeah. And the United Kingdom is tiny. Yes, yeah, tiny. Compared to the others. Yeah, it right? is. It is. And and this is, it's true. I, I mean, this is a fair criticism. Uh, and I don't know why everybody gets you know, so sensitive when this criticism is, uh, um, you know, put across uh, on, uh, and, and Indians get all, all you know, hustle, you know, they get very ruffled and then they say, oh, how, how did you say this? How did you say that? I'm like, listen, if you, if you don't do introspection, how are you going to be, you know, everybody keeps talking about this, you know, we want to be Vishwaguru. I was like, yeah, you, how do you intend to be Vishwaguru if you don't do any, you know, internal uh, evaluation. But now that, you know, we've spoken about the flaws, now now let's talk about possible solutions. And I know you are actually working towards one possible solution. And, and I want to spend, you know, at least a good half an hour, 45 minutes now on, on solutions. So so let's talk about what, what you are doing now. So let's talk about the center and tell sure. everybody about the center. What is the aim of the center? Sure, sure, sure. So, so here in the city of London, uh, we are in the process of uh, establishing a research center, mm-hmm. um, and it's called the International Center for Sustainability. Okay, and it has a really simple mission. It is that to build a much deeper alliance between the UK, the West, and India. That's it. To build a deeper alliance okay. between between. This now, obviously, I, you noticed I, I pulled out the UK um, from the West as if mm-hmm. it's not part of the West. Of course, it is part of the West. But I think the UK plays a really pivotal role okay. in helping the Indian narrative reach the rest of the West. Mm-hmm. Britain is massively influential. British institutions are three, four hundred years old, right? Many mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. And, and, and there is a body of work there that cannot be ignored. And, and the Western world doesn't ignore it. So therefore, you know, the center is established in London and not Washington, not New York. It's in London for a reason. So we're building this center. Uh, It's a large center. um, And um, effectively what the center will do is it will facilitate, uh, as I said, research. um, and, And what it will try and do is that it will help us here in the West, our policymakers, our journalists, uh, our writers, our ac- acad- the academy here better understand India. But it's an independent center. So we're not affiliated to a university. We're not affiliated to a government. Uh, we are funded uh, by the diaspora. The diaspora is funding this, right? Um, because we believe it's in our interest. It's in the interest of our children. But also, I think it's in the interest of the UK, the West, and India that we have center like this, um, which is, you know, funded from the grassroots. Uh, there's no shortage of money in the diaspora, right? It's just we have to harness it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no shortage of skills in the diaspora. We exactly. just have to harness it. Um, so this center will, you know, uh, will have uh, 
scholars and researchers of all ilks, Europeans, Africans, Chinese, right? But all of them working together to build a better understanding of the phenomena. And it's an amazing phenomena that is happening in India, right? And that is because, let me give a more strategic perspective. In the next 25 years, capital flows are only really going to four baskets. The US, we all know, is that still the giant will be the giant. Then there's China. Yes. And we know the European bloc. So we know what China's about, right? We know what the CCP is about. Yeah. We, we, could, we, we, we know that. We know what the, Euro, uh, the Yanks are about, right? We know what the Americans are about. And Europe, even though it has its problems, is still a power block. So that leaves India as the pivot. Now, India is still at a very nascent stage at its, of its development, you know, which in a way is exciting. That if, it, if, it, if it's got to where it's got to and it's still at a very nascent stage, imagine when it's mature. Yeah, and you can mold it in a, and you can learn from the mistakes. Correct, right? So India has the opportunity. If it plays its cards right, it can not just follow the trajectory of China or of the West, but it can leapfrog. Right, it has the opportunity to leapfrog and yeah. have its own solutions for its own people, um, because they have unique challenges. So, so, but from a Western perspective, so this is the British think tank, right? This will be a British research organization gazing at India. India, because at a very nascent stage, and as you said, it can be molded. India can still get things horribly wrong. I mean, it's, it's, there's no certainty that India is going to be this wonderful heaven on earth, first world country in the next 30, 40 years, and, you know, we'll all live happily ever after. There's no guarantees of that. Yeah. I mean, India has major challenges, right? Ecological to defense to, to everything. Now, territorial. Territorial, absolutely. So, so, so therefore, as India develops, it's too big for anybody in the world to ignore, right? And therefore, we have to be able to understand this phenomena and then to positively contribute to its growth. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we want the Indian story to be about a stronger democracy, not a weaker democracy. We want it to be plural, not the other way. We want it to be liberal, not illiberal. Right. Mm -hmm. So we want India, you know, and I, I make no qualms about it. I think these are universal values that are good for humanity. Right. Yeah, yeah. And therefore, I want India to go in that direction. I don't want India to ever become socialist again. Right. For example, uh, I don't want India to be split down religious lines, right? Or anything else. Uh, to me, these are these are just, and, and it's not just because I'm Indian and I have some uh, infatuation with being Indian or Indian culture. I'm not like that at all. I just mean it from a pragmatic world order perspective, right? I want India to be coherent as one nation. Absolutely. I want it to be contributing to international law, right? And I want India to be a major player in contributing to international law. Uh, you know, along with the Americans and the Europeans, right? Now, this center is designed to build these deeper alliances. Right now, my argument is that the relationship between the West and India is a transactional relationship, right? Mm. I need your markets. Mm -hmm. You need some of my technology, right? You need some of my educational institutions. It's skin deep, not soul deep. Exactly. And so this center is designed to say, look, let's really understand each other. Come on, let's really deeply, and let's have the tough conversations without embarrassing each other without it becoming the first front headline on India today or something, you know? It needs to be deep. It needs to be between not just politicians. It needs to be between policymakers. 
the people who outlive the politicians, right? Mm. And and real alliances are only built by friends. And therefore, we first have to build a friendship, which is, and a friendship can only be built on trust. That's what I was going to say, and it's this is the problem, and, and I apologize for mm. coming in here. The biggest problem from an Indian perspective when it comes to the West is about trust. Trust. And, and you know what? I don't blame the Indians, right? Ultimately, who were the colonial powers, right? Who, who was it that exploited the other, right? We, so history speaks for itself. Yet, we're going to have to get over the history. How do we do that? Correct. And that's what this center is about. That's the, that's the answer uh, that the center has to provide to your question, which is how do we get over that colonial baggage and history in order to build a deep alliance uh, with the UK and then the West? Uh, and I think that's only in the benefit, a mutual benefit of both. And it goes back to that point that Jason made, which is India can be perfectly non-Western, allow it to grow and develop in its own image, yet it doesn't have to be anti-Western. And the West need not fear its rise and its growth. If anything, the, the West should feel that the inherent values of the culture of India is liberal, is tolerant, right? is plural. Mm -hmm. It's not the other way. Right? Um, but that requires a lot of reinterpretation of Indian culture, Indian history, and so on and so forth. Because right now, it looks as if Indian culture is inherently hierarchical exploitative on caste basis on tribal basis and therefore if this country rises all of these values will rise you know and that's not good but we have to somehow change that because i don't think that is the case um and so this is what the center is about so that's what we're doing here uh in the uk and i have the i'm lucky enough and i and i have the good blessings that um I, i've been i've had the support from the diaspora to go and set this up so let's say if I was the part of the diaspora or so part part one, uh, let's divide this into two sets of people. Largely, we are, uh, I'm talking about people who are of Indian origin or, or not of Indian origin, but are in the diaspora. Diaspora being outside India. Group mm -hmm. A is mm -hmm. outside India. So, uh, and group B is Indians in India. People like me, Indians in India. So how can group A contribute first? And then how can group B contribute? Okay, this journey. So, so from the diasporic perspective, I think, um, I think you will find that the diaspora is deeply, madly interested in whatever happens in India, and it doesn't matter if the diaspora is one generation, two generations, three, five generations out. If it comes to India, the diaspora turns. It looks, and if India does well. All of us walk one foot taller. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting. Yeah, the moon right? landing man. I mean, I, the responses I've seen. I can tell you, right? And I'm a very, I like to believe that I'm a very rational animal. I try and be as rational as I can. But I can tell you, when India landed on the moon this time around, my chest came out a little bit. You know, I felt great about it. Now, why would I have that reaction? Um, surely at some psychological level, my self-worth is connected to the worth of that nation. Yeah. Right. And that is true for every diasporic child. Now that, that diasporic child may not be able to speak Indian language. I can't read and write any Indian language. Uh, they may not, not, they may never even travel to India, by the way. But when something positive happens in that land, they walk taller. 
is quite interesting because their identity is connected uh, in some shape or form. True. So, so therefore, the diaspora is, I hope, and what our efforts are, is that we want the diaspora now to realize that you have got to a position. Just, 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 just take this as, as a statistic from Synergy Bank. There are some 30 million Indians in the diaspora right, around the world. They contribute about 1.5 trillion to the global economy. Let me just say that again. 30 million contribute 1.5 trillion. That's a seriously successful diaspora, right? It is the largest diaspora next to the Chinese and the most successful diaspora. Now, I don't think this center is, you know, it should be harnessed. It should be invested in from the diaspora. So diaspora has got to a stage where it doesn't need and it shouldn't just be now obsessed about building schools and hospitals and orphanages. I think we've gone beyond that. I think the diaspora has to now start realizing that it, it has a role, it has a voice, and it should have a voice at the world stage. It, right? They should be setting the narrative. They should be setting the narrative. And therefore, and, and of course, they have the, the, the best. I mean, I, I count my blessings every day. Sheer dumb luck that I have, I hope I have, the best traits of what it means to be Indian and Hindu and also of British you know, and Western, right? I, I hope I fuse that really well. And therefore that gives me a massive advantage compared to most of the people, right? And I should be able to harness that now and, and kind of give it back, pay it forward as it were, into supporting and funding research, scholarships, PhDs. That's our seva now in the diaspora, I would argue, right? I think the days of building temples and the days of building schools and hospitals. I mean, that's fine. And I think that's noble work. But I think this is where the diaspora should play its role now. It should gaze at education. It should gaze at higher education. Uh, it should encourage its second and third generation to go in, okay, be doctors and be engineers, no problem, if that's your calling. But also explore the arts. Be a historian. Be a philosopher. You know, Because you have the material comfort to be a philosopher, never get paid that well, but you know your father's made a million bucks in the city. So you can afford to do that. That's the privilege of a third, fourth gen, right? We should take advantage of that privilege uh, for the whole. And I think this is where, again, this center uh, is being supported by the diaspora. And I'm very thankful, but I, I think this is where the diaspora needs to move towards. This is the gaze that the diaspora should have, that actually we are no longer just minorities because diasporas are minorities. Right? We have a minority complex, Yes. right? In the UK, we're 1.7%. But we contribute 5 6% to the, to the UK's economy. We wow. punch at almost 4x, right? That's serious. In the US, it's the same, right? In Germany, it's quickly becoming that way, right? So, so you can see that we should have a voice. We should not have this... My, we, we should recognize that we're a minority, but we should not have a minority mindset. Because as a collective, we are really powerful. And we should be more influential than we really are. All right. Then the, what about the Indians who are living in India or Indians like me who are kind of in India and outside India both? You know, I mean, look, who am I to say, right? I have not lived in India. I, I you know, I, I, I'm not sure. But, but you've asked two pence worth. I think there's a couple of things. I, I think, you know, uh, I want to say two things which almost seem opposites. One is I think Indians should, should really recognize that their contribution to the world and the world order 
lies within their own culture, their own society, their own civilization. And I think Indians need to spend time and money on researching, studying, developing the narratives in a way that will help the rest of the world understand who the hell they are. What is that you really want? What is that you want to really build, right? Um, uh, and 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 to, to when 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 they innovate, that innovation should be you know um, authentically Indian, as as Eric Fromm would have said, right? So Indians need to spend time and money on being authentically Indian, right? I think that's really really important. The second thing is I think Indians need to understand that the diaspora matter, right? As well, in order to attract capital, in order to uh, help bring skills back into India, um, uh, and so on and so forth. And so, so I hope that Indians also continue to keep one eye on what's happening around the world and not have the frog in the well mentality that that you 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 mentioned. That Indians should become more worldly, right? Indians should travel. Uh, Indians are traveling, I think. And and so all of that needs to continue to happen. While at the same time, Indians need to reflect inwards, right? And really think about humility pill, right? Explain that. What do you mean by so, humility pill? So, for example, you know, as you said, we Indians have to learn to take criticism well, right? Uh, Indians have to become much more rigorous in, in research in authentic research, in, in genuine uh, new ideas, innovation. And I know in science and technology that's happening, I'm talking about it in the humanities and the social sciences, right? In the political realm. Um, I think Indian democracy, I find, I wanna be honest, and I know you're an optimist on it, but I still find it problematic. I think it's still, Indian democracy still has a long way to go. And I think it is getting there, I, I can see it, but you know, there are some inherent structural and cultural problems um which it will need to overcome and so so i i i think from it from the indian story perspective i just feel that they know best i mean who am i to comment but but i think if if they could find the balance between inward criticism but also proudly and genuinely with rigor narrating what they are good at what do they have to offer the world right which I think Indian civilization, Indian culture has a lot to offer the world. If those things came out, then I think, um, you know, it would put everybody, including the West, in, in a position of um, comfort that, okay, no, these are a people we can, we can be friends with, we can, we can trust. I think trust is a key word. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of, and I think the other thing is with, with India, I think Indians should demand of their government much more spending on education. Indians don't spend, India doesn't spend enough on education. It just doesn't. I mean, the facts speak for themselves, crucial, right? Uh, Indians should demand that. That should be an election issue, right? That, hey, man, I want better schools. Every child in India, no matter where you live, rural or urban, you should have access to fantastic schools, right? And the disparity that you have right now in the Indian education system, it's still, rather, you can tell them it's at a very nascent stage, right? So I think these are the kind of things that Indians can maybe focus in on, which would really leverage what it can do with itself in the next 10 years or whatever. 
Do you think India as a nation should also start investing in centers outside India while they're doing it in India? Yes, because I think it matters. Yes, it's a short answer. Indians need to understand that 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 they need to be able to fund centers like the one we're building in London, but also it could be anywhere, New York, Tokyo, Beijing, you know, Moscow, but on our terms, right? I.e., what I mean by that is we don't just give $12 million to Cambridge University and say, please set up an India center. Because what you've done is you just outsourced your problem and you've said, Here, here's $12 million, Mr. Cambridge. Yeah, and you've you given know. it to someone who hires someone who hates India in the first Correct, <laughs> right? Which is what happens, right? What I think needs to happen is much more conducive and much more sustainable, which is, you know, give your money and back your your scholars, your thinkers with real capital, real money and real time, right? And goodness sake, pay them well. The work they're doing is is important. So I I, I, I would say uh, Indians certainly should look at funding centers around the world, but not, and here's some other bit, it should be a genuine research center, not a flag-waving center. Not right? an event management company. Correct, not an event management company. So there's a lot of so-called research centers and think tanks in India, which are just flag-waving, you know. And I'm sorry to say that I, I'm going to get hate mail again, but, but they are flag-waving. What we need is real research. Less rhetoric, more research. Real research, exactly. A real body of work that we can hang our hat on and say, go on, you, you can also kick the tires on this. Yeah, I, I can relate to this because, again, this has been my criticism of uh, scholarship that we generate. And I'll give you an example again, using Vikram, you know, my dear friend Vikram Sampath, a mm-hmm. historian, mm-hmm. you know, fellow from the Royal yes. Society. Now, the kind of rigor it takes to be a Vikram Sampath, people don't realize, like, the amount of archives like yeah, i remember vikram telling me that when he was doing uh, the savarkar books he had to come all the way over here in this very city yeah and uh, he started uh, looking at all the archives in london he took photographs of them because you know time was of essence you know everything costs right he's all coming all the way from india over here he took all the pictures collated them he went back he started reading the digital archives you know that is the kind of rigor that is needed and what? I think it's crucial. I don't think Indians understand it because in Indian society is quite frugal, right? But research is expensive. Yes. Research is expensive. Extremely expensive. So Indians have to leave their frugality behind and stop seeking value for money when it comes to research. They have to really say, this is high brand. This is high quality. You know, the research is like a startup. Like you invest in 12, only one hits. Correct. And But the one that hits... Oh, it's gives, a big one. Yeah, it's a big one. And, and that... The problem is in a risk-averse society, such an we because it's a poor society, so it's a risk-averse society, and uh, it's a chicken and egg scenario, where where uh, where we are struggling, and there are some of us. I'll give you an example. In my own journey, like I travel around the world. It's not like I'm paid for by someone. I'm, I'm spending my own money, uh, generating revenue from the podcast, thanks to you know some great members that I have and whatever money the podcast generates, I put it all in. I travel the world. I go to London. I go to Toronto. I go to New York. I go to Los Angeles. I talk to people. I try to learn from them. I take the India story to them. It's not like I'm paid by the government of India yeah. or something. It's all by my own money. It's all through my own pocket. Why? It's because I'm genuinely curious. Of course, that makes it sustainable. That This work that you're doing, this, this mission that you've embarked on, the fact that you've got grassroots support 
from the diaspora as well as people from India. Oh yeah, I'm funded make, by the diaspora and Indians. Right, makes you sustainable. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm saying. This phenomena that you are kind of riding, this phenomena needs to scale up. And and I pray and I hope that we'll have a hundred Koshal Meras out there. Yeah, right? I, I who agree are, too. Who are doing this kind of stuff and funded by the people, from the people. You know, like I think that that really is important. Um, because that will start telling you, they're, they're the telltale signs of a maturing civilization. Yeah. They're the telltale signs. Yeah. And 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 there should be hunger for knowledge. My my biggest grouse has been that you okay, I I, I understand. No, but Koshal, everything's in the Vedas, right? Yeah, but that's my all problem. the knowledge is already there. Yeah, this is my problem, <laughs> right? That societies that think that their ancestors figured everything out will never grow. No, no matter Which is the disease that many Indians have. Yeah, no, over here too. Such yeah, yeah diaspora too. Over, I mean, yeah. in the diaspora too. I mean, you just have to meet the uncles in the one there, <laughs> and and you'll know. And and societies that think like that stagnate, and societies that stop thinking like that and say, okay, yes, my ancestors had a lot of good things to contribute but what can i contribute and mm. what can i learn and what can i learn from the best practices of other cultures like why do i come here i meet people in this part of the world i learn their best practices and i look at them as an equal i don't look at them as someone superior to me mm. i look at them as an equal i get, i tell them this is what i can offer as an indian what can you offer as yeah. a let's say a british uh, britisher or an american or a canadian or any other culture and how can we build a better world together is my intention but uh, i think we'll get there but before we wrap it up well, maybe this this could be our closing segment what would be your your message to let's say 35 and below indians who watch this because that is a giant chunk yeah that's a huge chunk yeah that's right? like 50% of my 60% of my podcast you know i i would say to all of them simple aim for mastery not shortcuts Aim for mastery, right? I, I'm hoping most of your uh, listeners are not in survival mode, right? I'm assuming most of them are fairly well-educated. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're kind of curious, which is why they're listening to this. Mm. Um, so I would say to them, aim for mastery, right? Whatever it is, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a mathematician, whether you're a school teacher, whether, whether, whether you're a businessman, don't matter. Aim for mastery. If you can aim for mastery, right, you will succeed. And what India needs is mastery, right? So, so I would say in simple terms, don't if you, if you cut out all the noise, just focus on mastering whatever it is that you are committed to. Be a master at it. Be the best at it, and commit time and energy in becoming the best at it. Yeah, I I couldn't have agreed more with this. And you know, when I started this podcast a few years ago, everybody used to tell me that, why don't you have a studio? And I always used to tell them, if I have a studio, I'm stuck in one geography. Well, I couldn't have come to you. <laughs> yeah. It's so boring. It's so boring sitting in one area, just looking at everything from an Indian perspective. Like I told you, I hate the frog in the mentality. Like uh, I just packed my bag and baggage. All you need is a little bit of equipment and travel the world. Is it the Joe Rogan level uh, camera angle? No, it is not. But who cares? But Look at what I'm able to achieve. I'm able to talk to anybody anywhere in the world. I can just, you know, I can get down at Heathrow Airport, rent a car, drive somewhere, record a podcast, come out, come back again. And why do I do that? Because I want to understand how people think. Like, for example, in this tour, it's not even been, or it's been almost a week now since I've been here in the United Kingdom. The amount of people I've had to meet, yeah. the amount of perspectives I've gotten. 
all the arrogance that I see on Indian social media about England and what is happening to the diaspora. And I'm like, you guys don't even listen to them. And you just formulate opinions about them. Similarly, what's happening in Canada or what's happening in America or vice versa, the diaspora and their opinions on India. I'm like, you don't even know what's happening in India. And until and unless you don't travel, you do the hard yards, you meet people, which is what a real researcher does, to be very honest. They go and meet people, they interview them, they talk to them and they take notes and they listen to them. And it, it is it's just not there. And and. It's okay. Uh, as of now, I'm the only Indian podcaster traveling around the world and talking to people. And uh, I'm fine. I'm doing it. And listen, I just hope many more take inspiration and 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 copycat you. And and actually, you know, like I say, I hope there are many more Koshal Meras doing this stuff yeah. because it matters. There should be English podcasters traveling to Absolutely. India, America, Canada, and American Absolutely. podcasters traveling to India. And, you know, these kinds of things should be happening. And if we truly believe in, you know, the world being a better place for everyone that's the only way it can happen and and first of all congratulations on the center hopefully next time when when i'm back here the center will be fully operational yes, we'll from the center yes we will record the podcast not only that we will make a video tour absolutely, of the center absolutely. And, and, I, and i promise everyone and I all of you are the, welcome yes to come. and and i will put the video on because uh, i have seen the property i can assure you i was blown away i was blown away and it's it's in progress right now and i think in the next year approximately it will be ready it will be it'll be ready by february yeah, by february so hopefully i will travel uh, the next time i travel it will be like literally operational and i promise you you will see videos of the center over here in the charvak podcast but sachin uh, thank you very much for uh, no. agreeing to talk to me it's always been a pleasure to talk to you you know we know each other now for almost a decade almost a decade almost yeah almost a decade yeah. no it's a real pleasure and you know i wish you all the best with this podcast i think you're doing tremendous work in spreading good memes right and i think you know for that reason alone I, I wish you all, all all the best, and it's an honor to be on the podcast. No, it's an honor to host you. So, guys, we'll wrap it up. Uh, all the social media details of Sachin will be in the description of the podcast. Doesn't matter if you're watching this on YouTube or you are going to be listening to this on Spotify and iTunes. And once again, uh, why do I do this podcast the way I do? Well, uh, there are two reasons for it. A, I like to travel, uh, and B, I am completely member funded. I don't do any ad read. So, as you as you observe that every time I do this podcast, you don't you don't see anybody uh, saying this podcast is sponsored by so and so this podcast is sponsored by members only and so to all my members from the bottom of my heart thank you once again but if you can make this podcast survive even more and even bigger so that you know i can have multiple studios everywhere in the world i would love to have that but if you can do become a member of the podcast whether on youtube or on patreon or on fanmo or if you can't do any of that just like subscribe or you're an audio listener, leave a rating in whatever audio platform you are. I'll keep on doing what I do and I'll see you guys next time. Until then, namaste. Take care. Bye. Namaste. Bye-bye.